True Crime friends, welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, let's do some housekeeping real quick. If you don't follow True Crime in Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime in Academia, well, why aren't you? Get on it now, okay? Also, don't forget to follow my parent podcast, The Ivory Tower Boiler Room, on Instagram and TikTok at The Ivory Tower Boiler Room. You can also search The Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook. And on Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. Secondly, if you love what we do here at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia, then become a patron. Starting next month, I will have some exclusive Patreon subscriber-only content that you will only find there. I will not air it on this podcast. Sorry. So go to the website. Go to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom. Pick the tier that best suits you, and you'll be able to access all of that fun content, right? This is just a reminder that True Crime and Academia is strictly just for educational purposes. And obviously, I do not condone any of the behavior committed by any of these killers that I talk about. Obviously, I don't condone that. Don't do that. It's not good to kill people. Oh, and lastly, trigger warning for today's episode. We will be discussing suicide and racially motivated hate crimes. But yeah, I hope you all are having a wonderful day so far. If not, that sucks and I hope it gets better for you. We are in the month of May. Things are anew. We are in the May showers part of the April showers bring May flowers poem. It's graduation season. Congrats to all the grads, specifically our intern, Nicola Guello who is graduating this Friday. Congrats to you, girl. I'm so proud of you. And much like our victim, he had also recently graduated at the time of his death and was looking forward to going to college, just like many people are right now. And this this case is actually pretty frustrating for many reasons. Um, as I talk about all the time, it is frustrating when a young person going to college especially or someone in college dies because they have their whole life ahead of them that they're totally missing out on and you know that's just always sad but it's also frustrating when you have cases where like this the crime scene is just so grossly mishandled and sadly I don't I don't I don't know if we're ever gonna really find out what happens in this case but without further ado let's get into it Dallas Lip had been a paramedic during some of the most horrific natural and terroristic events, including 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. But a case that he responded to in the 1980s still haunts him to this day. On July 31, 1986, Lip and his partner responded to a suicide-by-hanging call. The two braced themselves for what they might find on the ride over to a townhome in Silver Spring, Maryland. Lip and his partner were prepared to go in, but the woman who answered the door, after quite a few minutes of knocking, might I add, 
stopped them and told them that the body that was hanging from the tree was in the woods by her home. The woman was reluctant to take them to the body, and the one man with her was on crutches, so he wasn't going to be able to guide them in his crippled state. A third man appeared from the townhome and guided them into the woods. When they arrived, Lip knew immediately that something was amiss. The rope that was used looped around two trees, and the tree the young black man was hanging from was bent over from the weight. The man's feet were on the ground in front of him, like he had been sitting at a bar stool. Lip was convinced that there was no way the man could have done this to himself, and feared the worst, that the young black man had been lynched. Lip and his partner left after police arrived, but Lip was curious to see how this case would be handled. He waited up at night and searched the news station, but no one was talking about it. There was nothing except until he stumbled upon a three-sentence explanation in a local paper of how this young black man had committed suicide. Keith Waddell Walker was born on April 9, 1967, to his mother, Mary Cooley, and his father, whose name I was unable to find. He was the oldest of two children, he and his little sister, Sherry. When he was young, Mary took her son to Bahama, North Carolina, to live with her mother, two brothers, and sister. Sherry had not been born at this point, just to let you know. Keith's family members described him as quiet, observant, and just overall typical brother and good kid. Sherry states that he was constantly getting to her stuff and on her nerves, but that he was a protective older brother. It was said that when Keith would get upset, he would take the dog for a walk in the woods on their property in North Carolina to just, you know, be alone. During Keith's childhood, Mary, his mother, got a job in the D.C. area, and the three moved to Silver Springs, Maryland. Sherry described it as it, you know, being a time of transition because she and her brother were so used to living with so much family. And now it was just the three of them. But eventually, you know, they settled in. Keith was a popular kid whose friends were mostly white and mostly female. He graduated high school and was accepted into North Carolina Central University and was to attend the fall of 1986. It was also mentioned by his aunt, and I just thought this was interesting, which is why I put it in was that around this time, Keith had decided to convert to Catholicism, which she had said was different because in their family that, you know, the religion you were born into was how you, you know, that's just what you followed. You didn't think about changing your religion. So the fact that he did do that, she thought was really interesting and kind of cool because he was, you know, graduated high school, he was going to college, you know, he was about to become like a real adult, you know, and this was just another adult decision that he was making and she was excited for him. On July 29th, 1986, Sherry had been staying with her aunt, and she remembers having spoken to her brother that day and that it was just a normal phone call. Then they had even made plans for Keith to come pick her up on that Saturday. Later that night, Keith went out. Mary states that he was wearing a t-shirt, shorts, a blue zip-up hoodie, his signature brown boots, and a white Jimi Hendrix baseball cap, with, of course, his backpack filled with cassettes. The next day, Mary felt uneasy when her son didn't come home. It wasn't like him to stay out and not tell anyone or to just not come home. So Mary did what any other mother would do in this situation. She called the police. Of course, because Keith was considered an adult, because, you know, he was 19, Mary was told that she needed to wait another 24 hours before she could file a missing persons report. 
She also called his friends, but only one of them actually claimed to know where Keith was, and this friend never called back or disclosed any further information. The next day, Thursday the 31st of 86, a person walking their dog discovered Keith's lifeless body hanging from a tree. Now, before I go any further, I kind of just want to touch on the societal climate of the time. Um, Racial tensions were high. And, you know, police brutality, we think it's bad now because we can see it. But sadly, this has just always been the way it has been for the black community. And I think more white people need to understand that and just stop acting like this is a new thing. But anyway, so tensions were high. And actually, in the area of Montgomery County, which is where Silver uh, Spring is, there had been many reports of hate crimes, such as lynchings, going on during the 80s. And of course, you know, KKK, they're still around, you know, but sadly, I think they were more active then than um, they are today. But. From a geographical standpoint, in the documentary Uprooted, they kind of explained how a lot of black people mainly lived in, like, these city areas, whereas the suburbs were kind of mostly reserved for white people. And from what I can see, it kind of, or from what I was able to find out, it seemed like this area that Keith and Sherry grew up in was kind of more mixed. But at the same time, the idea of a black boy hanging out with a white girl was still very taboo. Like, interracial relationships were still highly unaccepted. So, it was obvious, you know, that the police in this area also cared more about solving crimes against white people than they were about black people. (laughs) So, you know. Sadly, if you do your research on police in general, like the institution of the police and stuff, you'll find that a lot of KKK members had become police officers. So, you know, you've got this type of... And I'm just going to say it. The police is a very racist institution. It just is. I'm sorry. And I know you're going to tell me, but there's black people, but there's that, but there's that, ba 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 I know. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that this institution can't be racist while also being inclusive of the people that it hires. Okay. There needs to be major reform in the police. But anyway, back to 1986. So with racial tensions high and things like that, you know, I think it's safe to say that the police department in this area during this time were not other race friendly. So, you know, this happened. This comes up a lot in this case. And I think it's obvious because... When we talk about how this case was so horribly handled in a minute, I I want you to ask yourself, do you think this would have this case would have been handled the same if it was a 19-year-old white boy and not 19-year-old Keith Warren who was black? When police arrive on the scene, they found three forms of ID on Keith's body. I don't know what type of IDs they were. I'm guessing one might have been a high school, one was probably a driver's license since he did have a car. But they didn't say, so I don't know. But anyway, he had three forms of ID on him. I think it's safe to say we could, you can rule that it is Keith Warren, you know? But anyway, for whatever reason, but they still insisted on asking one of the guys who worked at the community's clubhouse 
to come over with them to identify the body. This guy's name was Rodney Kendall. Now, when he got there, he knew without a doubt that this was his friend Keith Warren. And the two of them, you know, it seemed like they were friendly, but maybe not super, super close as friends. But either way, he knew who he was. And in the documentary, he recounts that there had been no, like, crime scene tape, so the scene hadn't been blocked off. And that Keith was still hanging from the tree with his mouth open. Which was something he thought it was going to be, like, they were going to show him a body bag, unzip, and then zip. This was not that. After he identified who, you know, that Keith was the person hanging from the tree, he remembered walking by and hearing, like, the other officers asking each other what they should get for lunch. And you know what? I I can hear some of you being like, eh, well, some of them are seasoned, so maybe they're used to this. Yeah, but is that really the type of decorum? Is that really how you want to act at a crime scene? Talking about what you're going to have for fucking lunch? I don't think so. That's, I just, mm, I don't know how I feel about that, but... Either way, Rodney was never questioned again by the police or asked to give a statement. After that, police continued to canvass the area, asking residents if they could identify the man hanging in the photograph. Which, again, (laughs) why? You know who he is. He's got three forms of ID on him, and you just asked someone who knew him if, you know, who to identify him, and they did. I, I, I can't understand the thought process behind this unless it was to waste time. Honestly. A homicide detective arrived on the scene, and his name is Officer Leverett. Officer Leverett immediately rules this case as a suicide and actually called up the coroner and said that there was no autopsy needed. Then, from the record, it seems that around 3 o'clock, he had Keith's body sent to a funeral home. I think it was called Collins Funeral Home. With instructions to immediately embalm the body. Yeah. So, just to reiterate what is happening here in case you're kind of a little confused... This officer, who has no medical training, decides this is a case of suicide, tells the coroner not to come, and that they don't need an autopsy. (sighs) I do want to make a point that coroners are elected officials, so (sighs) I'm kind of just the conspiracy thing is running in my mind right now because coroners back in the day used to do this shit. They used to be in coots with other people who owned funeral homes and would tell the victims of unexplained deaths to use that funeral home, that they had to use that funeral home. And then these funeral homes would charge them a shit ton of money because they were gouging prices. So that way themselves and the coroner could, you know, get a little something, something. That's what this reminds me of, honestly. And the fact that the coroner didn't even see the body. And there are so many reports. Like one report says that the coroner was there. Another one that says the coroner wasn't. There's actually in the coroner's report that says that they spoke with Sherry. And that her brother had been missing for a week. When he had only been missing for two days. So what's going on with these reports then? What is going on? And I'm sorry. I know you're, you're probably going to hear me laugh multiple times. And I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because I'm fucking frustrated. And I just, ugh, it's just my response. And I'm just, ugh. Anyway, to make matters worse, because again, you know, three forms of ID. They asked around 
asked one person who could tell them who it was and then went to ask around. But do you think that they notified next of kin like right away? No, no. Mary wasn't notified until like six hours after her son had been sent to the funeral home. (sighs) I don't get it. Of course, Mary calls her brothers and sisters and lets them know what all happens. And, you know, Sherry finds out from her aunt and Keith's uncle, who's goes by the name Pete, but his his first name's Robert. He actually went to the funeral that home that day to identify the body. Because, again, they don't know that they found three forms of identification on him. They are just been told that they're that her son is there and that. She needs to call this funeral home at 9 a.m. the next day. But of course, when you hear that, but of course, when you hear that your child has been killed or is dead and (laughs) is somewhere, you want to be with them. I mean, that just makes sense. So she knew she wasn't going to be able to identify her son, but she wanted to at least make sure that it was him. So Pete goes. (laughs) But of course, what happens? He is denied three times by the funeral home to see his nephew and is actually told to come back the next day similarly to what mary was told they kept telling him keith's body was being prepared his body was badly decomposed and that for whatever reason they felt it necessary to destroy the clothes that he was wearing hmm reluctantly though after some time they do let the uncle to see him but he's only allowed to see him for a few seconds before they just rush him the hell out of there now while he is there Pete, a.k.a. Robert, noted that whatever these major signs of decomposition they said were, he couldn't see it. So it didn't make any sense to him that they're preparing his body and burning his clothes because he doesn't look like he has any of these major signs of decomposition. So why does that make sense? Keith's aunt also just remembered how rushed the whole thing felt from the time that he was found to his actual funeral now the whole family was completely skeptical as to whether keith had actually killed himself and rightfully so but there was only one person in his family that actually believed that his son did commit suicide and as i'm sure you've guessed that's his father father that's not really been talked about he hasn't talked to anyone as far as i know um but he believes that His son did commit suicide because he had had a mental breakdown for which he had to be admitted to a hospital. Now, I understand being admitted inpatient for mental illness is pretty severe. But you have to remember this is the 80s, the late 80s. No one was really taking mental health that seriously. Hell, they still really don't take it that seriously today. So... It could have just been a panic attack that he had to be put in for. But either way, I don't see that as a huge red flag that screams he's suicidal. I just don't. And I don't know what his father was going through, obviously, because I've never lost a child. But it seems like he just had more faith in what the police had to say than he should have. And is just trying to rationalize so that way this version of events makes sense. Because it would be a lot harder to accept that your son was killed by someone else and had it staged to look like a suicide, which, if that's the case, they failed because it made it look like lynching. But 
<sighs> you know, I, basically, I'm just saying, I think that he's just using that as a scapegoat to try and agree with the narrative that he's been given. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, true crime friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a -a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, Look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, If you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. A few weeks later, the family received Keith's personal effects. And this feels like a sick joke, just even saying this. But they also gave the family the rope that he was hung with. Yeah. It's just so sick to me. Like, ugh. But around this time, the family had, you know, wondered what had happened to the tree. And Sherry had actually asked Rodney to take her to the site where she saw Keith, or where he saw Keith's body. Rodney did his best, but he couldn't find the exact tree. Well, that's because the police had cut it down and put it into evidence. Which, okay, that would make sense if they were still investigating, but they weren't. Also, why would you give back the rope if you're still collecting evidence? But again, this case was considered closed at that point. So it's very, very suspicious. Six years later, on April 9th, 1992, the 20, or what would have been Keith's 25th birthday, Mary came home to find a file on her porch. It was addressed to her and there was no return address. At some point, Sherry had heard screaming, and she finds the file had contained crime scene photos from Keith's death. And you can see it's blatantly obvious that this is not a hanging. Again, because they had been told he was hanging from a tree. They never saw the crime scene. Nothing. So to see that he was in completely different clothes than he was claimed wearing, because he had on dark, uh, like a dark long sleeve shirt and dark pants, and white tennis shoes. Which that's not, if you remember, that's not what he left the house in. And that's also, those were not the clothes that they got. So if you remember from earlier, they had clo- the clothes burned at the funeral home. So there's that evidence gone. It's wonderful, right? The other thing is that's weird about this is that there's a person in the background with no shirt on. So it's possible it, could, it was you know, an onlooker, but this was definitely taken from 
the police files. Like this was someone on the inside had to have gotten this and wanted her to continue digging. Who that person was, we will never know. The other thing about the outfit is that Sherry claims that her brother did not own white tennis shoes. So again, I mean, he's already wearing clothing that he wouldn't normally be wearing. I mean, it's also summer, so why is he wearing long sleeves and pants? But also, again, so like, say, even if he did own those, where did the shoes come from? Personally, I don't think he owned any of those. I think someone dressed him up after he was dead. But then... If that was the case, where did the cops find his the, the clothes that he was seen leaving the house with? Because as far as I know, it's in no reports that they found clothes anywhere else on the scene. So, like I said, very, very suspicious. Along with the photos, there was a note that said that Mark Finley and another friend whose name was redacted would be next. Four months later, Finley was killed in what they called a freak bike accident. According to the port, supposedly he had hit a rock and flew over his bike and hit his head. Now, that could be a reasonable enough conclusion if his body hadn't been found behind the bike. Because think about this. If, you're, if you hit a rock and you go over the handrails, you're going to be in front of the bike. There's no way, unless you're taking the bike with you, but that's not normal for how people fall. Also, I mean, let's face it. How many times have any of us done this? None of us are dead. The other thing is the surface or where he was supposedly when he died, he fell on a flat surface. So it's not like he hit his head on like a, um, Jesus, what the hell are those things called? Like, it's not like he hit his head on this, uh, like on a sidewalk or, you know, like the little ledge or whatever. Nothing. So he hit his head on flat ground. And again, behind his bike. And he fell going over it. It just doesn't make any sense. And again, it's extremely suspicious considering of what is in that letter. The other thing is, Sherry recalls that in 1992, Finley had left a voicemail on their phone saying that he needed to come over to unload. Obviously, he never showed. I don't know what that means, what he had to unload necessarily. But not long after that, then he died. So we not only have one suspicious death, we have two. Now, at some point before Warren's death, Rodney Kendall was closing up the clubhouse at the Georgia Colonies, which was the housing community that they lived in. I know I didn't mention that earlier. My apologies. But he was closing up for the night and he was hanging out with a friend outside and a white Mazda comes up with, you know, some kids in there. And they're asking where Keith was. And obviously at the time he didn't know where he was. But he found it odd because, as I mentioned before, Keith generally hung out with a lot of white kids. And all of the kids in this car were black. So to him that was a little bit confusing and a little odd. Later that night, a friend of his approached and asked him if he knew where Keith was. And again, he was just like, I don't know. But he noted that this friend seemed more urgent when he asked him. Like, he was, like, really urgent in trying to find him. That friend was Mark Finley. So, I mean, we're looking at what possible motives, I guess. Even though we don't know what it is, but we know that there's something that had gone on. Right. 
I mean, I find it very interesting that, you know, Mark Finley dies. You know, these people are looking for Keith and Keith's dead. Again, I have no clue as to what happened, but we don't know. We just don't know. Now, at this point, Mary tried to get the FBI to look into her son's case. But again, they just kept pushing it down and referring it into Montgomery County Police Department, which obviously, as as we know at this rate, they're just stonewalling and not helping her at all and sherry remembers how her mother presented herself as this very like demure and safe and not at all angry like very kind when she spoke with officials but again police still tried to you know like calm her down and keep her from looking further into the case on may 25th 1994 keith's body was exhumed with the help of an organization at the time called clams and a private uh, investigator that she had hired named Joe Allersia. Finally, because they were able to get his body exhumed, they were able to finally get an autopsy performed, which thank freaking God, right? So the autopsy was conducted by a Dr. I. McCallis, and he concluded that there was actually no damage to the neck tissue, and there were no fractures to any of the neck bones. So, like, the whole neck structure was completely intact. And I understand that it's been, like, eight years, but there would have been at least hemorrhaging or petechia in the eyes that would have been consistent with um, an asphyxiation cause of death. But he didn't find any of that. There's literally zero evidence to prove that he died via hanging. What he did find was the presence of substances that would not normally be found in the body, let alone that had been buried for eight years. Um, He found a solvent in his system known as TCE, and there were high concentrations of it in his brain. And he concluded that in order for it to have been that concentrated in the brain that way, he would have had to ingested it. So it is possible that he could have been drugged. The only thing that's a little weird with TCE is that it had also been used in the embalming process during the 80s. But again, you're not ingesting it, obviously, when you're, you know, in the funeral home being embalmed and things like that. So that's a, it, that fact is a little iffy. But there is evidence to back up the theory that he was drugged possibly because there were empty wine coolers found around the area where his body was found or where Keith was found. So if someone slipped him this drug in his drink, he wouldn't have tasted it or wouldn't have known that it was in there um, because it already has a sweet smell to it. And, you know, if you just hide it in there, I don't think it has a taste. So he just wouldn't have noticed it. But like I said, because of the embalming process and the fact that no initial autopsy was done at his time of death, we can't say for sure where this TCE came from. Now, at this point in Mary's fight for justice for her son, she requests to see the tree that Keith had been hung from because she wanted to have it tested. She was informed that it was burned in a fire at the facility where it was being kept. Because of course, right? Mary also met with the DA at this time, and while he admits to the gross mishandling of her son's case, he refuses to reopen it. She had also mentioned that she would talk to some people, and they would seem very like interested in wanting to help her, and then just go radio silent, as if, in her words, they were you know silenced by some 
authority power, which if that is the case, then we know even more than it's a cover up. Right. On December 20th of 1994, they petitioned to have the autopsy reviewed by the medical examiner, John E. Similac. I think that's how you pronounce that. Sorry. But anyway, he supports that the funeral would have sprayed and injected a solution called San Vino liquid. And that contains TCE. So it's interesting because what I saw, he didn't dispute any of the other findings. He just disputes where the TCE could have come from. Which again, I know it's really hard to say. But also, like, the evidence in the autopsy just proves that he wasn't killed by hanging. So why are we still saying that he is? Like, it's just obvious. (sighs) It wouldn't be until 1999 the case would officially be reopened by Attorney General Doug Gansler. He presented the evidence to a grand jury, and they were basically there to vote to see if they should overturn the report of the original coroner's findings, or the coroner's original findings. In 2002, the grand jury came back as inconclusive, meaning that they couldn't prove that it was suicide, but they also couldn't prove that it was murder. So they put them in a very weird place. But again, had an actual death investigation had been done at the crime scene, there would have been more evidence. But it's probably evidence that they were trying to suppress. You can see where I'm leaning with this. To this day, though, the manner of death on Keith's death certificate has not been changed, despite the grand jury's ruling, which is infuriating. In 2003, a new chief medical examiner is is petitioned to review the autopsy. His name is Dr. David Fowler. Now, if this name sounds familiar, it's because he was the medical examiner in George Floyd's case. You know, the one who said that his underlying heart condition and not the the, uh, consistent pressure to his neck restricting his airflow was the cause of death. Yeah, that guy. Well, his office never acknowledged the petition. Which is probably a good thing in this case because since George Floyd's case, which I know is way after 2003, but still, since then, Fowler has come under fire for concealing evidence for police. And he's been sued by George Floyd's family and his office was being audited for, you know, his horrible jobs. During Mary's fight to get justice, though, the Montgomery police officers had done everything they could to silence her or to make her go away. It was stated that some officers even said inappropriate things to Mary, including they called her a mother who couldn't face the death of her son. They said, I don't care how many lawyers you hire. It's still not going to get changed from a suicide. And... This one kills me the worst. They said, if she had been a better mother, this might not have happened. Now, if you don't see that as a serious problem, then I think there's something seriously wrong with you. Because that is extremely heartless and cold. And these people are supposed to be protecting and serving. So how the fuck can they do that when they're talking this way to the mothers of victims? Like, get the fuck out of here. Sadly, in 2009, Mary passed away from undisclosed causes. It was said that her death was sudden. A group of homicide detectives actually had a party when they found out Mary had died. They thought that the fight for justice for Keith was over. But it's not. 
because Sherry is still continuing her mother's fight to this day. And to this day, as I mentioned, his manner of death has not been changed, despite the grand jury's ruling. And Sherry has been getting the runaround from both Montgomery County Police Department and the medical examiner's office. So what? And still, in 2022, how it's so blatantly obvious that he did not commit suicide, they still are sticking to their guns and to basically just giving her the runaround and they won't they don't want to do it but she hopes that her her mother's work will inspire others just not to give up she wants her brother's manner of death changed in both the case file and his death certificate from suicide to undetermined she would also like an apology letter from the Montgomery County Police Department acknowledging the poor treatment of her mother and the botched handling of her brother's case. Now, the current police chief, whose name is Chief Marcus Jones, he stated that he believes that, well, because he reviewed it, he said he did not find enough evidence to reopen Keith Warren's case. And to that, I'm kind of like, yeah, there's not enough evidence to reopen it as a murder because the police officers at the time did no investigation. So to review, (laughs) no death investigation was done, like I just said. They completely mishandled the scene. They didn't block it off. They clearly let whoever they wanted to come in and take a look. They didn't interview the 911 callers, Rodney Kendall, or any of Keith's friends for that matter, which I have to say many of Keith's friends refused to talk to anyone except for one anonymous friend who did speak on the docuseries. But other than that, apparently two of them, when the PI had wanted to speak with them, two of them had lawyered up and were like, no, we're not talking to you. So, and I mean, that just could be a protection of their own rights, but that's quite suspicious. But either way, so we have that. They didn't talk to any of the friends, the police department, because they told Mary there was no point they weren't investigating. Whatever. They also tampered with evidence by having the clothes that he had been found in burned and having him embalmed immediately. I mean, it is just insane to me how this case was handled in 86. I mean, I could understand maybe in the 50s and 60s. Or even the 70s. I mean, if you've heard anything or know anything about the Manson murders, you know how lazy or just undertrained these officers were back then. So you would hope like, well, you know, the next 20, 30 years it would be better. But apparently not. Apparently not. And that is insane to me. Because to me, the way that this case was handled says one of two things. Either the police were incredibly lazy and just did not care about what happened to Keith because he was black and they were racist pieces of shit. Or they're covering up for someone and are still probably racist pieces of shit. Now, of course, I have a few theories. As you could tell throughout this, I strongly believe that this is a cover up just because maybe because I find it so hard to believe that they could be so stupid. Yeah. I find it really hard to believe that they were just that stupid and that lazy. Again, that is very possible. But I have a hard time believing that because so much was done to cover it up. And again, you could also argue that it was just them covering their own ass, which also could be very clear. But then who on the inside was sending Mary these photos? Who sent them to her? Because clearly, like I said, someone from the inside had to have gotten 
the death scene photos. So someone got them. Someone thinks on the inside that this was completely mishandled and that, you know, Mary was right in thinking that there was something more going on in this case than what was being said or what she was being told. So someone knows something. Actually, I think more than someone's knows something. And as much as like I hate, I really hate to fucking say this, but part of me wonders if his friendships with white girls had was a motivator for this given the amount of hate crimes that were going on giving him the fact that the kkk was active i mean they're still active but you know they're supposedly not as bad but you know i like i said i just have a really hard time believing that they're just stupid because i don't think they were i really think that this was a cover-up and i think it might have had to do with who he was friends with at the time because like i said they didn't interview any of his friends none and yet he had friends and other people looking for him around the time of his murder. Like, to me, it just screams something went on. And if this, and I, again, I hate to fucking say this because it makes me sick because that people think this way. If it was, if, if it was that he had been killed by a group of black kids. I feel like they would have just come out with that and they wouldn't have worked so hard to destroy evidence, but they didn't. So this makes me think that this had something to do with one of his friends, one of his white female friends, and that the officers knew, especially the head detectives, and they just covered it up. And it's because of this horrible, shoddy police work that I honestly... Unless there's a confession, I don't know that this case is ever going to be definitively 100% solved. Because anything anything and everything they could have gotten evidence from is destroyed. <laughs> they have the rope, but obviously that's been handed back to the family. So there's too much DNA on that. Plus, you know, who knows what the state of the rope... Like, it just wasn't checked at the time so it could have been messed with and you know just not in the original state that it was when Keith was found hung but then you also have the tree that they had chopped down and had burned why are you chopping down that tree what is up with I mean okay not why are you chopping down the tree but why or how did this tree mysteriously get burned and I understand freak accidents happen all of the time but again, if they gave back the rope, why do they need the tree? What is so special about this tree for a case that they had supposedly closed that they needed to keep that in evidence? They needed to keep that piece of evidence close to the chest. Why? Was it because there was blatant DNA evidence or fiber evidence or something? I don't know. And we're not going to know, I don't think. Because like I said, the tree has been burned. So any sort of trace evidence, anything like that, that's if that was even the truth. I'm not fully convinced that that was the truth. But yeah, so why, again, why keep that? Why burn the clothes he was wearing? None of this makes sense. This is basic, like, oh my, it is just blatantly obvious to everyone with like a brain cell <laughs> that this case was not handled properly at all. And because all of the physical evidence, 
aside from Keith's autopsy report, which is hard to know or which is hard to really prove anything because it was eight years after the fact and his body had been embalmed immediately. So we don't know. (laughs) We can't get any toxicology results from that. So like I said, this case has been so poorly handled from the beginning. And it just, it makes me so sick to think that this is possibly a cover-up case because they don't want the truth to get out. Or they can't admit that they're wrong. And that's another problem with the police. They hate admitting when they're wrong. And I know I'm generalizing, but you say, um, and I'm not talking about an indivi- like individual police officers when I say the police. I'm talking about the institution of the police. <laughs> Because you see this all the time. They barely ever admit when they're wrong. And when they do, they don't like it. So, you know, and this is today that they still don't like, that they don't like to do this. So imagine how it was in 86. You know, this case is just, it's so sad. And it's really frustrating that it was not handled properly. Because I think we would have had a different outcome had it would have been. Actually, I know for a fact that we would have had a different outcome had it been handled properly and evidence not been blatantly destroyed. So the only thing I have to say is if you know something, say something. If you know something about this case, you need to reach out to Sherry Warren, Keith's sister. Um, I know she's on Twitter at Justice for Keith Warren. Right. Let me check that. Yes, at Justice, or I'm sorry, it's at Justice for Keith. So, you know, reach out to her. If you know something, reach out. I mean, for the people who do know something, because I do believe that there are people who do know something about this, like, shame on you, because haven't you done enough? <laughs> haven't, my? that's my question. Haven't you done enough to Sherry Warren and Mary Cooey? Haven't you done enough? I think you have. I think the least you could do is say something. Give this family closure after 36 years. Do the right thing. And that's all I have to say about that, guys. Uh, This is a very intense episode. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about this case. um, Because it just, it, it infuriates me how horribly it was handled. And... The fact that this family has been getting the constant runaround and has been treated so horribly by the Montgomery County Police Department, it's just disgusting. And things need to change. I say it all the time. Our justice system needs to change because it does not work for everyone, if it works at all, to be honest. And with that, I hope you all have a great rest of your week. Sorry I'm late on this True Crime Tuesday. I promise I will be back next week with a whole new episode on time. I promise. (laughs) Don't forget to check the show notes. Um, Obviously, I have all my sources, but one of them is the website that Sherry runs, um, Justice for Keith Warren. Um, It has all the latest news and updates about this case there, even though I pretty much covered them all here. But like I said, you know, check it out. Figure out ways that you can support Sherry and her family, and hopefully they can, you know, maybe get their version of justice, you know? All right, guys, have a good rest of your day. I'll see you later.
We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an ivory tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook, and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the ivory tower boiler room next week. Bye everyone. Bye.